Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. In the years between 1915 and 1970, almost 6 million black American citizens from the South migrated to northern and western cities seeking freedom and a better life. Our guest is Pulitzer Prize winner Isabel Wilkerson, author of The Warmth of Other Suns, the epic story of America's great migration. This book tells the untold experiences of the African-Americans who fled the South over three generations. In the first of two interviews recorded from Isabel Wilkerson's home near Atlanta, Georgia, on September 28, 2012, she begins with a description of the biggest untold story of the 20th century. Well, I describe it as the greatest untold story of the 20th century because it went on for much of the 20th century. It began in World War I, did not end until the 1970s, and resulted in the relocation, the outpouring of 6 million African Americans from the South to all points north and west. Uh, it involved every state outside of the South. They went as far as Maine uh, to Alaska uh, to escape essentially a caste system. This was not a move. It was, in fact, a defection from a caste system, a seeking of political asylum from an artificial hierarchy that held them within the grip of certain kinds of things that they could and could not do based upon what they looked like. And so this was, in some ways, a defection that went, uh, that went in some ways, unnoticed uh, in the ways that it could have because it went on for so long, and also because the people themselves did not talk about it because there was so much heartbreak and pain associated with their their decision or their feeling that they had to leave their homeland for other parts of their own country. Beginning in approximately um, 1915, going on up through 1970. This was the only time in American history that American citizens were forced to or felt that they had no other option but to leave the land of their birth for parts of their own country just to be recognized as the citizens to which they had been born. No other group of Americans has ever had to do that. And this migration began in large numbers because of World War One, which was when the North had a problem, a labor shortage, in which they needed labor because the war was going on in Europe, but the European immigrants who had been working the factories and the foundries and the steel mills uh, were, were no longer coming in in such large numbers. Your immigration came to virtual halt from Europe, and so the North looked for the cheapest labor in the land, and so that took them to the South, where many African Americans were actually working for no pay. They were working as sharecroppers. And so the first arrivals came to the North and the West, uh, at the express invitation of the North, which needed the labor. So when it's called the biggest untold story of the 20th century, what are your thoughts on why it has been untold? It's been untold for many reasons. One is from a journalistic perspective, it was a hard story to tell because it was going on for so long. Journalism, which is focused on what's happening that day or that week tends not to be able to as easily uh, capture something that went on for generations 
when it began, many of the people who would ultimately be writing about the first people arriving, because it was written about during World War One when it was first first occurring, many of those people had retired or had passed on by the time the migration ended. It was the entire time the migration was going on, people expected it to be over. It would be over after World War One. It would be over during the Depression. It would be over before World War Two began. People expected it to have been over, uh, and so each at each stage, people were misjudging the uh, the determination of these people to get to what they perceived as freedom. So it was not from so from that perspective, it was not captured in the way that it could have uh, from the standpoint of the people who were actually doing the leaving, they didn't necessarily announce what they were doing. These were people who were leaving as individual families, much like any immigration experience. These were one one family added to another, added to another, making, you know, millions of people departing a particular place. And they didn't announce their, that they were leaving. Many of them actually had difficulty leaving to begin with. The South didn't make it easy for them to leave. The South uh, put up many barriers to their departure. They would arrest people from the railroad platforms. They would arrest people from their train seats. And when there were too many people to arrest, they would literally wave the train on through so the people who had been hoping for the chance to leave uh, ha- actually had to watch the train go without them and figure out how now would they get out. And so they didn't make an announcement about what they were doing. And even after the fact, they didn't share with their children all that they had gone through, their hardships and all that they had endured and suffered because there was a a sense of heartache and shame attached to what they had endured, and they didn't tell their own children. They didn't want to burden them with all that they had endured. And so the stories were not necessarily told even across generations, and so it remained quietly kept and 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 uh, unresearched in the way that it might have been because the people themselves didn't want to talk about it. Well, let's talk about the understanding of that experience, that the act of leaving was the most significant measure of migration. Can you elaborate on that? When you think about the world that any immigrant or migrant is leaving, and you think about all that they're enduring and what it takes to gain, to get the courage and the resources to leave, you realize that the act of leaving itself is so dramatic that it, it in itself is the point of the freedom that they're seeking. These people were all seeking freedom like anyone else who's ever crossed the Atlantic and steerage across the Rio Grande or across the Pacific Ocean. And it's that great courage and fortitude and the vision that they have, and in fact the desperation and determination that they have, that often gets lost in any discussion of it. And I, I think that we have to remember, I think, the, the world that they were leaving. They were leaving a world in which was actually against the law for a black person and a white person to merely play checkers together in Birmingham. They were leaving a world in which throughout the South there was actually, in courtrooms throughout the South, there was actually a black Bible, an altogether different white Bible to swear to tell the truth on in court. They were leaving a world in which it was actually against the law for for a black motorist to pass a white motorist on the road, no matter how slowly that person was going. And they were leaving a world in which every four days an African-American was lynched for some perceived breach of the caste system that they were born into. And so they, when you think about the world that they were leaving and what they were seeking, you realize that the act of leaving itself was in some ways uh, an act of, of a kind of a revolutionary act, because this was the first time in American history that the lowest caste people signaled that they had options 
and were willing to take them. It was the first time in American history that they actually could choose where they would live and what they would do for a living. So it's a revolutionary demographic sea change and turning point, watershed moment in our, in our history. And the act of leaving was the whole point for many of them, just to get free. Did you find in your interviews that those conditions existed up until 1970, the time of, that's been identified as the end of the migration? Yes, the, the migration ended um, in the 1970s when the initial conditions, the, the primary conditions that had uh, fed this migration came to an end when finally the South began to implement the, the, the laws that had been passed in the 1960s. When you talk about what uh, was prohibited, passing someone on the highway, uh, playing checkers, those prohibitions, de facto, if they were not actually laid out in the law, existed up through the 70s? Yes, there was a resistance to implementing the law, and one uh, example of that was in Prince Edward County, Virginia, in which, uh, despite the requirement to integrate the schools, the the county decided to just close the school system altogether rather than to integrate. And so this went in there, you had an entire generation, for five years into the 1970s, there were children who were not able to go to school, African-American children who had to move to other counties or they simply did not go to school for five years. And so this was a world that did not begin to change in de facto change until the 1970s, which gets into the lifespan of many, many millions upon millions of people alive today. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Isabel Wilkerson from her home near Atlanta, Georgia. She's the author of The Warmth of Other Suns, the epic story of America's great migration. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Well, Isabel Wilkerson, if I may, I want to ask you a horrible question. You mentioned people being lynched every few days. Can you describe that, what that means, what lynching was? That's a really, that's a really good question. I, I think the idea of exploring what lynching really means is important for people of today because I think over time we've lost sight of what the word actually means. And what it means, what it means was that an individual would have been captured and accused without the benefit of the law or of the, or of the court system, accused of some breach usually of the caste system into which they had been born. And they would be usually tortured before they were eventually killed, and that many of them were hanged, some were burned alive, some were dismembered. This was, a, this was a horrific part of our country's history, and this went on uh, for many, many decades and generations. And the two decades leading up to this migration and the decade immediately following the beginning of this migration, an African-American was lynched every four days for some perceived breach of the caste system I've described. And the more common reason for lynching was actually not for the more spectacular cases that we do hear about, the, the cases such as Emmett Till, uh, in which uh, an African-American might have been accused of an untoward remark toward a, a white Southern woman. Those are the more spectacular cases, but the more common reason for lynching was for the amorphous accusation of acting like a white person, which could mean anything. It could mean not tipping one's hat, not stepping off the sidewalk, 
fast enough, walking into the wrong door, the side door as opposed to the back door, whatever was perceived as a breach of the artificial hierarchy that had been created to maintain the economy and the structure of life in the South as they had known it. And after the torture and the killing of the individual people, there was no judicial retribution against the actors. Generally not, or overwhelmingly not. And when there were, uh, they would be facing an all-white jury, which would acquit them, and generally they would say that this killing occurred at the, at the hands of persons unknown. That was, the, more, that was the, the general resolution of any of these cases. It should also be mentioned that these lynchings usually occurred in front of many thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people. There was a case of, of a young man named Jesse Washington in Waco, Texas, in which he was burned alive in front of 5,000 people. So generally, they were a lynching would have been a public spectacle that involved the torture and eventual killing. And the same fate was likely to befall anybody who protested the lynching. It would have been, and therefore there was very little protest of any lynching because there were there were consequences for anyone. That's one of the things about this caste system. It, it was such a, a a force in the structure of life in the South that there were consequences for anyone who, on either side of the caste system, on either side of this dividing line, there would be consequences if anyone broke rank, broke ranks with this prevailing system. So there were tremendous. Uh, there was a tremendous amount of pressure on people on all sides to maintain the role that they had been born into, which meant that there was a loss for everybody because a tremendous amount of, of force was necessary to maintain it, and that meant that there was a loss of time and energy that could have been put into other things but instead were put into enforcing an artificial hierarchy. Well, Isabel Wilkerson, let's talk about the significance of the measure of, of the act of leaving, what that takes. Perhaps you could share the story of Arrington High, who published for many years the newspaper called The Eagle Eye. Arrington High was one of the unrecognized warriors in what might be considered the pre-civil rights days. In other words, the civil rights movement that we think of of the 1960s actually had precursors. There had been people who had been protesting and resisting this caste system for generations. Uh, but it's, it's as if they were trees falling and no one there to hear them. And he was one of the people who was protesting and resisting many years before we would know about what would be called a civil rights movement. So here we are in the 1950s, early 1950s, and he's in the isolated precincts of Mississippi, and he's protesting what he has discovered to be some breach of the caste system from the other side. He's discovered that some white politicians have been frequenting a um, brothels that, that were primarily African-American, and he had discovered other things that he would write about in a broadside. It was a very basically a, a sheet, a newsletter that was exposing uh, the realities of life in the South at that time. And for doing that, he was punished by being committed to an, an insane, what was called an insane asylum, uh, in Mississippi. Once there, other activists who had been aware of his plight began to try to figure out what could they do to help him get free. And so thus went in place this elaborate uh, plan to get him out. And 
this story is so inspiring, I would think, because it's an indication of what it took, for, on the one hand, for, to get one man free, what it took for any of these people really to get out, and the dangers that they faced in doing so. But also it's inspiring because it's an indication of how people on both sides of this dividing line came together quietly and with determination to do the right thing in, in freeing someone who had been falsely accused and, and basically imprisoned to uh, condemned to a life in, in um, an, insane, an insane asylum. And so what it took was it took uh, an effort on the part of whites and blacks to get him out. And what they did was they uh, created a caravan of cars that, went on to the property of this uh, isolated uh, uh, insane asylum, which went over many hundreds of acres, and they communicated to him somehow that they were going to be coming. He positioned himself in just the right place for them to come. There were five cars, four driven by white motorists, white drivers, and one driven by a black driver. He got into the car with the black driver, and they then went uh, very slowly to get to the exit of this insane asylum, which had been, of course, walled off and very difficult to leave. And because of the because there was a white car leading and a white car behind at the end of the caravan, they were waved on through and they were out. And they continued on their path to get him out of the state of Mississippi. And they got to the border of Alabama and. Mississippi, and there he was told to get out of the car and cross over into the other state where there was yet another set of five cars to carry him to the next place that he was to go. And then he was taken to uh, a funeral home and directed to get into a casket. And he made his way out of the South and out of the caste system to freedom by getting in the casket. And uh, he was he escaped inside the casket on the train to get to Chicago. The other story that I'd like to ask you to share, Isabel Wilkerson, is the story of George Swanson Starling, who left the South, uh, arrived in New York, and worked on the railroad as a conductor. And what he was able to do after the passage of the Civil Rights Act with regard to how African-American people were expected to move from one part of the train to another. That's fascinating that you would bring that up. For one reason, it, it, he's yet another person who uh, is an indication of the quiet resistance that was occurring throughout the South all these generations before what would ultimately become known as a civil rights movement. You, you might say the crescendo of all of this effort toward freedom. And he had been working in the citrus groves in the 1940s, a time when the world, the country was at war uh, and thus had great need for, for, for labor. And uh, at that time, he was actually agitating for better wages and work conditions for the people who were picking uh, citrus fruit. He had had a couple of years of college and, so, and was quite good with math, and he could see how poorly the people were being treated. And so he became, in some ways, a union organizer, although there were no unions allowed. And for his efforts to try to, to get these individuals to band together, he actually uh, got on the 
uh, bad side, the wrong side of the Grove owners, and was in some. He was forced to flee because there was a plot against him, a plot to lynch him, for the uh, for for what he was doing by rousing up the pickers in the groves, and so he was forced forced to flee in um, the 1940s, and he he fled to to Harlem, to New York, where he then began working as a railroad porter. His job as a railroad porter took him back and forth to the south although he very rarely went back in the early days to the town that he was from. But he went back and forth to the South, so he had a chance to see the migration unfolding, these millions upon millions of people leaving the South with their, um, with, what, with all their worldly possessions and sometimes chickens, too, as they were heading north. And uh, he actually lived to see and worked on the railroad long enough to see the ultimate outgrowth of all this, which was the civil rights legislation in the 1960s. But interestingly enough, there was no announcement to the people who were actually going to be benefiting from these changes. So a lot of the people who would get on the trains did not know that they actually could move now from the segregated uh, segregated seats that they had, had been accustomed to, that they could actually sit anywhere on the train. And many of them were afraid to take that leap into a, a part of the train that they had never been in before. And so one of the things that he said about doing quietly, and he had to do this very quietly because he himself could have gotten in trouble if it had become known that he was doing this, is he would actually alert them uh, when they got to the, the south and they re- got to the border crossing that had been there before Washington, D.C., uh, going north and south. And he would let them know that they, they no longer uh, had to stay they no longer had to sit where they were were accustomed to sitting. They could actually sit anywhere on the train. And he he had to let them know that. And they were not aware of it. And sometimes they would would question him. And and he almost got in trouble for letting them know that the rules had changed, that they could actually sit anywhere they wanted. And that was partly because the the trains themselves, the conductors, did not go out of their way or actually do anything to uh, enforce this new law because of a fear that uh, white Southerners would not still want to sit with them, even though this was now the law. So I think this gives a window into the how slowly these new laws were actually put into effect. This was not an overnight thing where suddenly people could sit anywhere they want and thus began to do so. This was a very slow unfolding of the freedoms that had been fought for so long, and he was at the at, at, you know at, at, he was right in the center of that effort to try to ease these people into the new freedoms that they themselves were afraid to to take on. The sense that I read from your section about George Starling and this portion of the um, of his work on the railroad is that he was a teacher. Uh, he was almost a crusader to get people to understand the freedom that they legally had on the railroad. I think that he had always been a, a teacher. He had been seeking to, in quiet, unrecognized ways, teach the people who had been the, the citrus pickers in the 1940s that they could actually ask for a nickel more box for citrus fruit that was going to go on to the open market for four, three or four dollars a carton when they were only getting 12 cents for what they were picking at great uh, peril to themselves because they had to climb into 40-foot trees in order to obtain, to get the, the citrus fruit. And so he had been doing this all of his life. There was something in him that that actually was uh, an activist for social justice 
but he never really had the opportunity to do it in a formal way, and so he did it in the ways that were available to him, and he took it upon himself to let people know that they could sit anywhere on the train, that they didn't all have to cluster together in the places that they had been accustomed to, and he, he took it upon himself to alert them to that, and uh, I think that it was people like him who helped to ease us into uh, into modern the modern era as we know it. Isabel Wilkerson, author of The Warmth of Other Suns, I want to thank you for being with us on this first of a series on Radio Curious about your book that tells the epic story of America's great migration of African-American people from the South that occurred in our country between 1915 and 1970. Before we close, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. And one is um, about an epiphany and aha moment in your life that has guided you. One epiphany or one moment that occurred for me that I can't even imagine uh, not occurring, I can't imagine what would have happened if this had not occurred, which was the discovery of the words of Richard Wright, which gave a title and a name to this book. When I discovered those words in the footnotes of his uh, autobiography, uh, Black Boy, suddenly all that I had been working on, I spent 15 years on this book, but all that I had been working on, I discovered it around year 12 or 13 of, the, of a 15-year uh, odyssey of working on this book. Uh, when I saw those words, I realized then what it was that I was doing and what the story was and how very urgent it was. And I could see it from the words of someone who had actually lived it and had spent much of his career, really all of his career, writing about this heart heartbreak and longing and dislocation that comes with migration. And suddenly it hit me what it was that was my mission in completing the book. And it gave this tremendous velocity to what I had been doing, and it actually helped me get to the finish line. And so the words, the, the warmth of other suns come from the words of Richard Wright, and that was a huge epiphany for me. And if you could share with us what you would like to do with the remainder of your one precious life. I want to continue this work of hopefully helping people see the importance of social justice. My goal is to is to win people over one heart at a time through the use of language and the use of characterization. The goal of putting people in the hearts and the minds of people who they might never otherwise see or see themselves in and to recognize that we all have so much more in common than we've been led to believe. And to have people look at someone who they might never imagine themselves being or having anything in common with and seeing what would it be like to be them. And so that's what I want to continue to do. And finally, Isabel Wilkerson, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? I recommend a book called The Ark of Justice by Kevin Boyle. It's the story of uh, a man who migrated from Florida to Detroit. He was a physician and he wanted freedom as any other American would. And freedom for him, uh, beyond the, the migration itself, was to be able to have uh, a bungalow in a nice neighborhood in Detroit. And so it's a story of longing, of heartbreak, of seeking the American dream, and what happened in this one city in the 1920s 
and it's almost it became a forgotten story until this book came out, and that's the book I would recommend. Isabel Wilkerson, I'd like to thank you for being with us on this edition of Radio Curious. Thanks so much for having me. Isabel Wilkerson is the author of The Warmth of Other Suns, the epic story of America's great migration. The book she recommends is The Ark of Justice by Kevin Boyle. This program was recorded on September 28, 2012. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.